This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. What a joy to be together. It's great to be in fellowship. <clears throat> Let me draw your attention to that last verse we read together. Just listen to it again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I'm sure that these very words are being read and spoken and sung and heard all across the globe today in places and in churches and homes small and great. Uh, they contain those well-known uh, promises that we associate uh, with Christmas. Uh, but as I mentioned last week, their, their deep and profound meaning can be lost on us if all these words ever are, are words on a coffee cup or on a Christmas card. And we better appreciate and understand uh, the, the profound things that God was promising when we understand and remember the context into which the prophet spoke them. This was some 750 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And this promise of a child to be born and a son to be given uh, was an answer was a solution, God's answer, God's solution to profound uh, problems that led to despair and gloom that was being felt by the people of God, particularly a small believing remnant of real believers in the ancient people of Israel. And really their struggle, their their suffering and the things they were facing is, we might say, a portrait or a microcosm of the troubles that all of us face because they have the same roots. And Isaiah, if you heard as Scott read, uh, summed it up as darkness. Darkness. And what was the darkness that they were facing? Well, they were facing the darkness of God's judgment, God's discipline upon them as a people. And this led to the darkness and the crisis uh, of the threat from without of the Assyrian army. In his discipline, God had sent this great Assyrian army it had already come through the northern part, uh, through Israel, and was beginning to come to the southern part uh, of Judah. And history notes, outside of the Bible, history notes uh, the, the fact that their methods, their way of treating people as they conquered them were horrifically cruel. They were utterly heartless. Like so, so many groups today, perhaps, that we hear the sort of unfathomable way they treat other human beings. They lived in a time much like ours. They lived in a time of wars and rumors of wars. Though unlike us, who are sitting here, warm and in this space, it was coming upon them, and it wasn't far away. 
Internally, internally, there was a crisis in them as well. They faced uh, a, a crisis of spirituality. They were living in a time of profound spiritual and moral decline. In general, apart from that small little group of the remnant of true believers, the vast majority of the people of God were estranged from God. They'd, they turned away from him. They stopped trusting him and trusting his word, and they began to look to human resources. They began to go to necromancers, to the occult, for counsel. Uh, they trusted in alliances with foreign powers rather than trusting in God. They trusted in their wealth. Uh, Judah was well off at the time. They were materialistic and they had no shame. They had the vast majority no shame uh, in their immorality to display it publicly. In fact, the prophet says earlier in chapter 3 about them, he says, this is part of why God is bringing his discipline upon them. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds, their words and their actions are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. In other words, literally in, before the eyes of his glory. They know better. They know God sees all. And yet they paraded their immorality. He goes on to say uh, in verse 9, For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Sounds like social media. And then the prophet says, Woe to them, woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. They've brought the judgment and discipline of God upon themselves. And he speaks a series of woes. He, he goes back and forth and comes into chapter 5. Uh, these are judgments of God. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, you know. Materialism, right? Consumerism. Didn't just happen in America. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. We said first hour, wow, what a great accomplishment. You're a hero at drunkenness. And so these are the woes that God sent upon, upon Israel and Judah. And, and it's, as, it's, as, it's as if because they've desired to live in darkness blatantly. God says, it's more darkness that I'll give you. In chapter eight, just before we read the words that we're used to reading at Christmas, this is how it ended. Remember chapter eight, verse 21. Now the prophet's speaking about the near future that's gonna come upon them. He says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they'll turn their faces upward. In other words, they'll look in heaven and say, you know, isn't it amazing that people say they're agnostic or they're atheists when life gets really hard, then they look at heaven and say, who are you? And then it says, verse 22, after they look at heaven in contempt, it says they'll look around for human resources, the people they've been trusting in. It says, 
that look to the earth, you know what they'll see? He says, behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust, the implication is by God, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness. And that's how chapter 8 ends, you know. I can't speak for you. But I can speak for myself. I know that if, if this was me and my kindness, my generosity, my grace, my mercy, my provision, my constant love was mocked, was rejected, was spat upon, was disdained, and even in public, I would be done with a relationship like this. But God's not like me. Praise God. You know, this week I was reading in preparation, I came across the testimony of this woman, uh, and she said, in her testimony, she said, I'm glad God loves me more than I love him. And I thought, amen, that's how true. How true. You see, because it's in this context of the despair and gloom that was the result of their own hatred for God, the rejection of God. It's in that context that God and his mercy speaks these great words of promise that say that he's going to bring about a great transformation, that he's not done with his people. He is faithful to his promises. Remember how chapter 9 begins? It says, but, but. Other translations say, nevertheless, nevertheless, despite your rejection, despite your spitting in my face, despite your fist at heaven, despite the fact that you have brought upon yourself these woes, nevertheless, there will be future tense. There will be in the future no gloom. No gloom for her who was in anguish. And then the prophet goes on to say, as, as, as Scott read, that in the very same, <clears throat> that region where God had sent the Assyrian army uh, up in the northern tribes, there's going to come a day when darkness will be turned to light, when distress will be turned into incredible joy, and when war and the instruments of war will end and it will all be turned into peace. And how will God at some point bring about this incredible reversal, this incredible transformation? He says it will come about through the birth and life of a child. A unique human being will enter the stage of human history. A child will be born, a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. In verse seven, which we didn't hear, says, and the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. A unique person will enter the world. And he's already given us a hint through the prophet in chapter seven of the uniqueness of this person because he said there would be a virgin who will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then the description he gives of this person who enters human history, 
tells us, reveals his uniqueness, that tells us that he has both divine and human nature. He says, a child is born, which stresses what? His humanity. He, he will come into this earth through a woman. He'll be born of a woman. He shares our humanity. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you know what you find out about Jesus Christ? You find out that Jesus Christ slept, ate, drank, grew tired, wept at his friend's funeral, and he bled. A child is born, he's a human being, this coming future person, but he's also a son who is given, given because of his preexistence. He is divine, this underscores his divinity. And this is what we reflect upon at Christmas time. The, the fact that God's answer to our problems and their distresses was that he himself would come. Christmas is about reflecting upon the birth of Jesus. We don't know he was born on December 25th, and there's no problem with that at all. We, along with the historic church, choose to celebrate on this day, uh, tomorrow, uh, the birth of Christ, because what we're celebrating is not the timing per se, but the incredible miracle of the incarnation. It is central to the Christian faith. It's really an astounding miracle, and in fact, it's been called the miracle of miracles. And it really, if you think about it, you get past the Christmas glitter and the pretty drawings of, of Christmas cards, a little babe, and so forth, and you get to the heart and core of what is taking place here. It should leave you and me in awe that God, the Creator, adds human nature to himself and became what he wasn't, the God-man, without ceasing to be what he was, God, out of love for you and me. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It should leave us awestruck. It's a mystery, really. It's a mystery that cannot be fully comprehended, uh, but it is designed to be gratefully received and believed. Uh, to help you just reflect a moment deeper upon the wonder of the Incarnation. Let me read you a quote from a, a Puritan named Stephen Charnock. He eloquently said the following words. He said, what a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief an infinite joy in deity and inexpressible sorrow in humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. He concludes and says, the incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. It's my prayer that through our time together, that's exactly what will, will happen, that we'll stand in greater awe of the wonder, the miracle of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And to what end did he do this? To what end did he become the God-man 
you know, one of my professors who was also a pastor who's now with the Lord, he used to say it this way, it, it, it sticks with me and I hope it'll stick with you. And what he used to say was, the eternal son became the incarnate son that we might become the adopted sons. And it sums up the whole message, not just of Christmas, but Easter, right? The eternal son became the incarnate son that we might become the adopted sons. And how does this process of being adopted take place, and how is the incarnation associated with, with it or related to it? Well, that's seen in part by means of those four names or four compound names or titles that were given to him by the prophet. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, this wasn't unusual in the time of Isaiah. You know, in the ancient Near East, this was a common thing that, that they would give names, sometimes really long names and compound names to kings when they were enthroned. Usually it was a way of saying, this is what this king will be like, or this is what this king will accomplish. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the emperor of Babylon, that he, he took on that name when he was, was enthroned. And so this is a common thing what's taking place here. These four names are given uh, by the prophet uh, because they, will, they speak to what this child will be and what this child will accomplish by way of who he is. And each one of those compound names is designed to meet a deep human need of ours. And God knows it because he made us. He is the creator. We need spiritual illumination, understanding, wisdom, not just intellect, spiritual understanding. So he gave us the wonderful counselor. We need deliverance. We need deliverance from the bondage of sin and our twisted passions. And, and so he gave us mighty God, El Gabor, the hero, the champion, the godlike champion. Uh, we need not just physical life, we need spiritual life, eternal life. And so he has given us the everlasting Father. And lastly, we need peace. We need to be at peace with God, our Creator, and we need peace on earth. And so he has given us the Prince of Peace. You know, this morning when we are looking at these titles, this is Jesus that we're looking at. Now I would say, as others have said, that the greatest name of all given to him is Jesus. Right? Yeshua saves. God saves. But these four titles, right, helps us, I think, look deeper into who he is and who God meant him to be for you and me this morning. Now, the first two we looked at last week, so I'll move through them a little more quickly, and I'll maybe bring a few nuances that we didn't talk about last week. This child to come, which came, who came some 750 years later, he is a wonderful counselor, literally could be taken from the Hebrew, a wonder uh, of a counselor, a miracle of a counselor. 
And why is that? Because he is the word of God in flesh. He is the very wisdom of God. Uh, that means what? That means that Jesus of Nazareth has the very best ideas and insight, and he has the very best plans for human beings, for you and me. He can counsel us with truth that's based on reality, life as it truly is, because he is God in flesh, a wonder of a counselor, and we need that kind of wisdom. We live in a culture, I mentioned again, and I just keep stressing, we live in a culture, a time in a society where uh, basically we're told that every human being is an independent meaning maker. You decide your own truth, make your own truth. It doesn't matter if it collides with everyone else's truth because it's your truth. And the guiding principle we're told in our culture now is to follow your feelings as the ultimate standard of reality. That's not reality. And where is this led? It's led to warring factions and tribalism, just countless opinions and people having different ways of viewing life and humanity and so forth. We need, we need counsel from heaven. We need someone who can speak to us about what is real what it is to be a human being, what it is to have a soul, what it is to die, and what happens after death. We need someone that tells the truth. Let me ask you, who do you go to when you need counsel? When you face something that's just mesmerizing to you, just you can't, you can't see your way through it. Maybe it's a crisis, maybe it's not just some important decision, but a heavy one, a, a one that will have a tremendous amount of impact. I know what I do. We tend to do what? We tend to go to people who have lived a bit longer and maybe been through that. <laughs> we, we think we'll get some wisdom from them because they've gone through these sorts of things. I've spent, honestly, I've spent hours over the last month on the phone with four pastors that are 20 years younger than me. And that's the reason they call. But who am I when really what we have is what? A wonderful counselor the insight of the living God. And this is to whom we need to turn, you see. Because Christ is the only counselor, the only counselor who sees the truth in, about your heart, who knows the truth about your motives, why you do what you do, what it is you're after when you do what you do. He's alone can peer into the depths of your heart, and if he so chooses by his grace, let that be known to you. He can do what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, no one else can do. You remember Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And I say again, that's why we repeat over and over, don't listen to your heart. It's desperately sick. We're, we're blind to our blindness. And so we speak to our hearts. We let the counselors speak truth and reality to our hearts. Jeremiah goes on to say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. He's a wonder of a counselor because he knows the truth about you and me. And those are great moments. I hope you've experienced those moments, right, where 
all of a sudden it just becomes clear to you something has been hovering here for who knows how long and suddenly it's, it, you see it and it's like, that's been the problem. I'm the problem. <laughs> and I'm the problem in this way. Thank you, God, for showing me. God wants you to hear his counsel, to know his counsel, and to trust his counsel. And I'll say that over and over again. Secondly, he's mighty God. Remember that, what that meant, El, a word for God, exclusively for God in Isaiah, El, God, and, and Gabor, a, a hero, a warrior, a champion. He's a godlike warrior or a, a divine champion. And what does he come to do? He comes to deliver us. He comes to rescue, he comes to overcome our very worst enemies because he is mighty God. He's come to save us from our worst enemies. And you know who our worst enemies are? It's not a politician. It's not a political party. Our worst enemies are sin, which means what? We have a record. We have a record in heaven. Our sin and the consequences of our sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. And the Son of God came to be our warrior, our divine warrior, who because not only of his human nature, he can represent us and stand in our place, but because everything he does has the quality of God doing it because he's the divine warrior. He's come to free us from our greatest enemies. There is a door, and the label on that door is, is death. And every one of us, every one of you is gonna pass through that door. There is no escaping it. And some of us have lost loved ones that have gone through that door. The child who was born, the son who was given, is the only one who walked through that door and came back through that door three days later and says, take heart, I've overcome sin and death. Trust me with your life, trust me with your death, take my hand. I am the resurrection and the life. He is mighty God. How did he do it? He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin, die to its power and its guilt and its consequences and live to righteousness. Praise God, amen. He's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God, divine warrior, our, de our savior. And now these last two this morning. The child is the everlasting father. Now, literally again, the Hebrew can be translated different. It can be translated the father of the ages. The father of the epochs. And there's, there's many a, a Hebrew scholar who take it that way, and biblical scholars who would say, what he's saying is that this child is Lord over the ages. He is the Lord of human history, of salvation history, and in fact, he's the consummation of salvation history, father of the ages. But there's a reason many other scholars and our translators take it differently. They take it everlasting father. 
There is a good reason. I, and I understand the sort of the mental struggle for a second. You say, wait a minute. How could they be talking about Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. How could he be the Father? Isn't this a confusion of the persons of the, of the Holy Trinity? He should be called the everlasting Son, not, not the everlasting Father. I understand the tension that we feel uh, when we read something like this. But not every term, not every title that Isaiah uses for the babe, for the child, is in relation to the Holy Trinity. This title is in relation to us, as many a scholar take it, you see. The child to come is the son, but the son is not all he is. The, he is the son in relation to the father. But there is a sense that he is the everlasting father to his spiritual offspring, which is what we are, which is what a Christian is. Look, I am a son, but I'm also a father. A son is not all that I am. In relation to my mother, yes. But I'm also a father in relation to my children. And I'm a grandfather now eight times over. Ka-ching. <laughs> And so it is with the eternal one. So it is with the child who was promised, you see. So we just have to ask ourselves, well, in what sense are we his offspring? In what sense is he our everlasting father? This child fathers all whom he brings into union with himself and brings into God's eternal family. If, if, it, if Paul could say this, consider what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. If Paul could say to the Corinthians, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If Paul can say that, surely it can be said of Jesus that through him we are fathered into the family of God. And in fact, in the closest context, of Isaiah from the same author in chapter 53 the prophet Isaiah says these words chapter 53 verse 10 he speaking of the Messiah he shall see his offspring he shall see his offspring his seed spiritual offspring the many whom he will justify I think that's the sense in which we are to take the fact that the child to come is everlasting father. We are his spiritual offspring. And in fact, if you read the gospel of Matthew and Mark, there are occasions when he will speak to a man and suddenly he'll call him son. He'll speak to a woman on another occasion and call her daughter. Because he understands what has been said about him. And so we ask, in what sense is he fathering us? In what sense does he father us eternally, everlasting. He is an everlasting father to his children. Well, listen, to father is to give life. To father is to impart life. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. I am the life, John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. He possesses 
a life that human beings don't naturally possess. We possess, you know, our physical life, our heart beats, our lungs breathe. And we, we have been given life, but the creator, but we need spiritual life. A life we're not naturally born with. We are spiritually dead. John 17, Jesus prays these, these words. Uh, I read him directly. John 17, Jesus had spoken words to his disciples, then he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. He's coming to the cross. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then he describes eternal life. It's not just about living forever. Every human being is going to live forever, either in judgment or in glory. He says, and this is eternal life. Here it is. That they may know you, the true and living God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, you see. Eternal life is a quality of life that no one possesses unless Christ gives it to you at the moment you receive it. And what is that life? It's a spiritual knowledge of God. Not simply knowing about God, stuff about God, but knowing him, being in communion with the living God. Later the apostle John would write in 1 John chapter five these very clear words. There's just no gaining around them. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. I'm reading from 1 John 5, 11. He's talking to Christians. Follow with me. He says, God gave us, Christians, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You could be in a church building your whole life, counting years, that is, and not have life because you don't have the Son. To have the Son is to be joined to Him spiritually. To be joined to the everlasting Father is to have everlasting life, eternal life. And that's why God sent Him into the world. God so loved the world, He gave, He gave His only begotten, His unique Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Two chapters later, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. He who hears my words and believes him who sent me does not come into judgment. You will not face the condemnation at the end, but has passed out of death. You were dead. You've passed out of death and into life. God sent his son that you and I might have that life. And that life is received by believing in him. This Christmas, know that. There's life in the Son. And God sent him that you may have that life. That life is knowing God, being in communion with God and his Son for the rest of eternity. Lastly, he's called the Prince of Peace. You know, Prince was a common, a common designation for a government official in the ancient world. It had the idea of the, an administrator in a, in a kingdom. Christ is the administrator of peace. 
He's come to be the royal administrator of peace. Now, this is a title we're more familiar with at Christmas time, right? Because I read from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. On earth, peace among those with whom he, God, is pleased. And whom is God pleased with? Those who live sinless lives now. Those who believe him. Those who trust him. Those who receive him. Now this title, beloved, this title, Prince of Peace, is the last title, and it's meant to be very climactic. Why? Because remember the context in which the prophet was speaking. What drew the prophet's attention to the future under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? It was peace, peace. Why peace? Because they were living under the threat of being demolished, destroyed, bloodied. They were facing tyranny from the Assyrian army. And here, he was the prophet who was preaching the doom that God is sending. And then God lets him see there's coming a time when a prince will walk onto the human stage and he will be the prince of all peace. Yeah, I'm sure it astonished him. This is what brought hope to when he originally mentioned these words. And this prince, this administrator, this, this child who is unlike any other human being, when he comes onto the human stage from the prophet's perspective, he's going to bring about something that no other king, no other prince, no other prime minister, no other emperor, no other president, no other government, no other, no other union of nations like the United Nations or the European Union, no other place like America, no, like no one has ever been able to accomplish, and its history is evident of that, what? He will bring about everlasting peace. Peace on this globe, peace on earth. And it starts with peace in your soul. Peace in you the peace of God. What kind of peace? What is peace? The Hebrew term that many of you have heard before, shalom, is a very rich, beautiful Hebrew word. Shalom. Shalom means more than the absence of hostility. It's the presence, the presence of well-being well-being, fullness, human flourishing, think of this, human flourishing, well-being in relationships as God intended it. I think once in a while we get a glimpse of that, you know, maybe you're with some people you love and you're sitting there, you just said, you got a full belly. And you're looking around and there's joy, there's people laughing and just for one second you think, this is shalom. And then someone starts crying, you know. <laughs> One of the eight grandsons. And you're like, okay, now shalom's heaven. This is not. <laughs> Somebody get the diaper bag. Here we go again. It's all over. Shalom, shalom. Most of you have lived long enough in relationships that you understand the difference between the, ab- the absence of hostility and the presence of well-being that comes from reconciliation. When someone is, when you have been 
when you've been alienated and heartbroken in, in a relationship. I think every married couple's been married longer than maybe three days. <laughs> you know the difference between what? The absence of hostility, which may mean just what? The silent treatment now. Oh, there's no hostility here, Tony, in our home. Yeah, you just don't say anything to each other. How long has that been going on? That's not peace. You know the difference between the absence of hostility and the active presence of joy and well-being, tearful hugs that are the result of what? Reconciliation with this broken relationship, the hurt that's come between you, and the reason there's reconciliation is there's been forgiveness. There is no peace without reconciliation. There's no reconciliation without forgiveness. And this is what the Son of God, this is what the Prince of Peace has come to do. He's come to bring about reconciliation. First of all, vertical reconciliation, healing of the greatest breach, the biggest alienation, the biggest breach is between us and a perfectly holy and just God who is at odds with our sin. He came to heal that breach first. And then when we experience the peace of God, when we're at peace with God, then we are to pursue the horizontal peace with one another. Peace on earth. And churches should be places, what? Of peace. Christian families should be places of peace, right? And I can imagine some of you here today, if you're honest, you'd say, we need more peace in our family. There is a breach. We're not all like this. There is an offense here. It needs to be reconciliation. It's amazing, huh, how quickly we can find flaws and faults with people and then hold on to them and keep holding on to them, become embittered. It's amazing to hear people who, and I'm talking about Christians, who can say after some time, yeah, but he said and she said and he did, and how long ago? Three years ago. Colossians 3, if anyone, anyone has a complaint against anyone, just as God forgave you, so all shall shield you. Some of you lack peace horizontally in your relationships because you hold on to things. You need to forgive. And that's based on the forgiveness you've already experienced from God. I can tell you this. You don't need to tell me what this person did to you. I'm going to say this. Your offense against God was worse. And yet he's breached. He's, he's, he's closed the gap. He did the reconciling when he sent his son into this earth, yes. I've seen... I've been a pastor now 33 years. I've seen God, through the Prince of Peace, heal relationships, heal marriages, let's say, that you would have thought, there's just no way. The hostility is too great. The time has been too long. The anger is still burning. And yet the Prince of Peace made peace because he brought them into a recollection of their peace with him. 
and then their heart overflowed. There was what? Confession, forgiveness, then reconciliation. After reconciliation came what? Peace. Peace with one another that flows from our peace with God. And how would this child establish peace with God? How would he bring about that vertical peace between a holy and just and perfect God who is wrathful against our sin and knowing that we are sinners? Well, that's why he added humanity to himself. He came and he stood in our place and he received what we justly deserve. He received the full condemnation and the wrath of God for our sins. He stood in our place. He paid the penalty. And then he also, what? He lived the life that we ought to live. He earned the righteousness that, and God gives grants both to us the benefits of his life and his death we are saved how? we are reconciled to God how? Uh, by the dying and the doing of Jesus Christ we receive the benefits of his death and his perfect sinless life by grace through faith alone God credits it to us blessed be God he did all the, all the reconciling. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. He provided the basis. In our faith we received the gift of God. That we might be reconciled with him. You know he says something a little further down in Romans 5. In Romans 5 chapter, chapter 5 verse 10. Listen to this. He says if while we were enemies. Did you know we were enemies of God? I didn't think I was an enemy of God. I, I didn't grow up thinking I was God's enemy. I, was, I grew up in a mildly Catholic home, and I believed in God. I went to First Communion and was baptized as an infant, and I went to Mass on occasion. I didn't know I was an enemy of God until I met somebody who actually read what God thought of the things I did and thought. And I realized I was an enemy. He says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, who does the reconciling? Not you and me. He doesn't say if while we were enemies, we finally got it together and reconciled ourselves to God. No, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled by God to God through the death of his son. How much more now will God love us huh, and save us from his wrath to come through the life of his son? He did the reconciling. He made peace between us and a holy and just God. In fact, Isaiah, again, in chapter 53, a chapter well known to many of you, chapter 53, he keeps developing the identity of this child and he he speaks of the child, the Messiah, to also be a suffering servant. And in chapter 53, this is what he says about the suffering first servant. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, so that upon him, on his back, was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. It brought us peace. We didn't make it. We didn't earn it. We don't pay for it. We don't try to grasp it. We don't achieve it. He gave us peace. It brought us peace through what he suffered in our place. And then it says, by his wounds we are healed. There is no peace without reconciliation. There is no reconciliation without forgiveness. There is no forgiveness 
without atonement. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Christ also suffered once, says Peter, for sins. One time. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. What a statement. He doesn't use the word peace there. He doesn't say reconcile. But he says what? That he might bring us to God. That's reconciliation. And this peace with God achieved by the Son, the Prince of Peace, must be received. Achieved by Him, received by us. Received how? By faith alone. The good news of the gospel, I say again, I repeat again, my friends and my, my brother and sister, the good news of the gospel is that any sinner, no matter how bad you've lived, how long you've lived in rebellion, no matter how often you've shook your fist at heaven, no matter how... Blatantly, you have paraded your sin and rebellion against God. No matter how bad you have sinned, any sinner can be at peace with God by grace alone, based on the merits of Christ alone, and received by the empty hand of faith alone, so that no one can boast God saves. That's the good news. What's God want from you and me? He wants you to trust him. He wants you to believe him. He wants you to know him good enough to trust him and believe him. You know, as a parent, a great hurt, and maybe it works the other way too, with children to parents, yeah, I imagine it does, yes. To not be trusted by your child, to not be trusted by your parent, that hurts. God wants you to trust him, to simply believe in him, what he has said, what he's done, that he loves you this much to have come. He wants you to trust that. Trust him. Trust him with your life, trust him with your death, and receive the free gift of salvation. He doesn't want you to come and make empty promises. Get me out of this, God, and I'll never sin again. Right. He doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want any doing, any accomplishing, any improving, any I'll get there, any I'll not sin again, or I won't sin like this again. What does he want? He wants you to trust him, to believe him. You know, there's what, five, I think, bridges in the Bay Area? Maybe there's more. I'm, I'm losing count here. And uh, living as long as I lived in the Bay Area, I've crossed those bridges countless times. But in all the times I crossed the bridges, back when there was toll booths where there was people working in toll booths, right? There was maybe a handful of times that when I crossed one of those bridges, I came up to the toll, and then the, the man or woman working there said, go ahead, the guy before you paid for you. Sometimes it was family member, it was a friend, and I did that too for other family members, but there's maybe a handful of times when I came to the toll booth and they said, go ahead, somebody, the guy ahead of you paid for you, and I would just pause there and go, what do you mean? 
you know, I, I got my three bucks out, right? He goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, he paid for you. And I go, why? He goes, I don't know why. <laughs> Just go. <laughs> and I sit there and think, wow. Just go. That's what God wants from you. No doing, no accomplishing, no cleaning. He wants integrity. He wants your honesty, which is what? I need what you have, what you've done for me. Forgive me. With forgiveness, there's reconciliation. I pray that be the case with every single one of you. That's why God sent his son into the world. And if you have been reconciled to God and you know the peace of God, praise God for that this Christmas. And seek peace with others. Don't hold on to things. If anyone has a complaint against anyone, and that's a universal anyone, even him, her, just as God forgave you, so also should you. Peace on earth. Thank you, God. This Christmas, God wants you to know that. He sent his son that you might be at peace with him and live in peace with others. We await the consummation of the kingdom. You say, well, this sounds empty, the whole earth. There's not peace on earth. Oh, there's peace in earth, yes, on people. But we were taught to pray what? Thy kingdom come. It's not here yet in its consummation. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that it is in heaven. And you know what's in heaven? Nothing but peace. And so we pray. Let's pray now. Lord, thank you for this time of reflection together, for this word that came from your prophet Isaiah. Thank you, God, that uh, you've given us insight, those of us who are Christians. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us life. Oh, Lord, look at our hearts. You are the searcher of our hearts. Only you know our true motives. You know what's going on in our hearts. You know why we do what we do. You know what's going on, what we are searching for, what we desire in our life more than anything, more than you. Oh, Lord, cleanse us and forgive us. Show us our true self. Help us all, Lord, to live according to the, your wonderful counsel, to reality, to life and death as it truly is. And deliver us, God, from the lies of our time. And if God in any way, my friend, has spoken to you and pressed upon your heart that he's talking to you today, just go through the toll booth. Just trust him. Just believe him. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You don't need to make a promise. You just need to trust him. And help those of us, Lord, who know your son to keep trusting you in our life wherever we find ourselves now. Help us to build our life on, on your son. And Lord, we finish with our gifts and our offerings. We bring them to you, Lord, as our worship and praise. At Christmas, Lord, sometimes especially as hearts are some to give, life is difficult. We pray you meet their needs in abundance. In Christ's name, amen.